Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today we hear from James Hughes, CEO of FIP, one of the world's most prestigious membership associations, connecting media businesses around the world. Plus, we speak with Iranian-born photographer Nilsha Tavakolian on how she uses her work to highlight women's issues. And of course, it's Wimbledon season, so our good friends from Racket Magazine are here to tell us about their plans in London and about their new issue as well. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, nothing better than hearing some valuable insights about the print industry from James Hughes, CEO and president of the prestigious FIP. They have recently hosted their World Media Congress in Cascais. What were the main takes and highlights of the event? James tells me more. It was wonderful. It was so great to see everybody in person. We, I think we were reminded over the course of the three days of the event what we had lost in the time of COVID. I think I worked out that it was something like 800, 850 days since the last Congress we'd had in person in 2019. And you could really tell that everybody in the intervening period was so kind of full of pent-up energy and enthusiasm to see people in person again. So the in-person aspect of it was fantastic, and it was great to see that back, you know, in a thriving way, in a thriving live environment. And I'm glad you were in Portugal as well, in Cascais, because I always think, James, I actually think the Portuguese, they quite like print media in general. It's a small country, but I think that they are really keen on that in a way. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the great things about holding the event there is that over the course of the last year, I mean, it's a country I know very well anyway, having grown up there, but it's been a great opportunity for me to really get under the skin of the Portuguese media market. And it's a surprisingly thriving and vibrant print market. They still have a large range of local newspapers. There are obviously several large national newspapers. And then there is a reasonably healthy and successful print magazine scene as well. So that was a kind of really important extra added factor for the event, as well as that we were able to bring a large contingent of Portuguese publishers to the event and have them as part of the experience. From all the panels and discussions, I mean, do you have now a kind of a positive outlook perhaps for the industry for this year and next? I mean, was there a lot of reasons to be optimistic? I think there were loads of reasons to be optimistic. Yeah, I mean, the most optimistic thing I think that came out of it was I was fully expecting that everybody would be full of talk of recession and uncertainty and the difficult times that we're living in. And apart from expressing our support for our colleagues in Ukraine and, and also for those in Russia who were who were opposing the regime, it was surprisingly free of any of that kind of sentiment. Everybody was pretty positive about the economic outlook. I think there was a feeling that this will pass relatively quickly, that consumers are kind of expecting some of the price rises that might come along. And so it won't be quite as much of a shock as it would be in other circumstances. So there wasn't any of that negativity around the economic situation. I think also there was a sense that for the first time, we've come out of a crisis now with a clear understanding of what the path is for the future of our industry. You know, this mix of print and digital media and services that we provide as a publishing industry, I think is something that everybody's very excited about. Yeah, and I think it's becoming more natural as well, because before, I don't know, a few years ago, it felt like, oh, it's just digital, just print. But I think they can both coexist in a way. And I think that's kind of obvious, but perhaps it was not that obvious maybe a decade ago or something like that. I think that's right. I think also one of the things that came out of the event was a feeling that we've overlooked print for a little bit too long mm. and that print has started to find its place in the market now as a kind of luxury 
upmarket, higher priced medium that lingers in the home and that perhaps we've been too quick to forget about that. I mean, in the opening remarks that I made at the event, I sort of asked everybody, if we're not magazine businesses, then what are we? You know, can we please mm. find a way to define ourselves? Because I love magazines. I'm not ashamed to stand up and say that I love magazines. And I know that all of you at Monocle and most of the people listening to this love magazines as well. So there's still an enormous body of people in the world who love this medium. And of course, one of the other big things is that we still make a ton of money out of it. I mean, if you ask most publishing businesses, they will tell you they still make enormous profits from their print business. So that sentiment about bringing print a little bit more back to the foreground was a really nice thing to hear. And, you know, of course, at FIP as well, at your World Media Congress, I mean, you have guests from all around the world and from different yeah. continents. Do you have any regions that are doing very well? Or do you feel, is it still a case that, for example, continents like, I don't know, Africa, Asian continent, they're doing very well? Or how do you see the world view for that? I mean, it was a little bit difficult this year because of COVID. We weren't able to welcome as many guests from Asia and from the Americas as we would have liked. Nevertheless, we were able to pick out some stories of success. I mean, look, there's still opportunities for growth in Central and Eastern Europe. Those markets are clearly still reasonably vibrant and with some expectations of growth in the future. We were also, for the first time, joined by speakers from Africa and from African media markets. We had a fantastic speaker, Nkiru Balonwu from Nigeria, speaking about her experiences in that market. And it was just great to hear that there's a lot of activity and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of entrepreneurial spirit happening in markets outside of the common gaze that we have on western and north american markets and for us at fip i mean you know one of our goals over the next two or three years is to increase our focus on markets that don't get the attention that they have done in the past so you know we've been very focused on the uk and the us and germany and european markets and i think for the next few years we really want to look at those markets in africa and asia and south america and kind of provide a spotlight on what's happening there because from our initial investigations it's clear that there's an enormous amount of really exciting activity happening in those markets not just in the publishing world but in the media space more generally yeah that's fantastic and and james was there any talk about you know free press because at the same time of course we have a lot of optimism around but there's a little hardening you know when it comes to attacks against the press and i think that's not necessarily only in dictatorships but even in democratic mm. countries as well Yeah, and also news deserts. I mean, that was something that came up in the opening session. The idea that, I mean, when the Portuguese Association was speaking, despite the vibrancy of the market in Portugal, there are a number of cities where there is no local news anymore. So there's a number of factors involved in this, you know, fake news. There's how you fund news and journalism, particularly with the push towards having more independent journalists through platforms like Substack. And then there is this question of news deserts. Look, this is something that's been debated. I think there is general support for the moves by Google in particular to fund journalism more directly through some of the programs that they've got going on. It probably doesn't go far enough in terms of the level of funding, but it's a start. And I think everybody recognizes that from a start, from the platform that we've got, we can build something more significant. But I think also there was an understanding that, you know, digital transformation which is really seen as being the way to fund journalism in the future is not new. I mean, for the first time, we really were talking about it as something that's embedded in every business. It's been going on for 25 years now, right? I mean, it's not a new phenomenon. And I think there was a sense that we just need to get to grips with it now and really start accelerating the extent to which it's funding these projects. Because the experience with digital subscriptions, for example, shows that they work in pretty much every market around the world and for pretty much every brand around the world. And so, you know, there isn't really any excuse to not have that and to not have a means of funding your journalism. And now a question that would be very interesting for me as well, because we're talking in a podcast, right? Apparently mm. the boom for podcasts will continue, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, astonishing. We thought when COVID started that podcasting was a commuting format and therefore would suffer from people not commuting. Actually, it's exploded. Listenership has exploded in COVID. And I think the experience of people having more leisure time, more time at home, more time going out for walks because they're you know, not able to travel and socialize in the way that they were before COVID has really led to an explosion in it. And actually now it's always telling when the biggest problem for a content format is discoverability, then you know it's really, really successful. And that's the state you're getting to with podcasts. Look, I mean, podcasts now have four or five different ways to make money. They are widely recognized as being a lot more sticky than video. You know, the average podcast listener is listening to something like 35, 40 minutes of audio. The average viewer on Facebook Watch is watching 14 seconds. So, you know, there's an enormous amount of engagement through a podcast. And also, they're pretty easy to do, right? Any media business can get set up with a podcasting studio with relatively cheap equipment relatively quickly. An enthusiastic editorial team, you could pump out podcasts quite quickly. So they're absolutely here to continue the only question is how you get them in front of your listeners. Thank you very much, James. And this month, Giorgio Armani and the photography collective Magnum Photos debuted Colors, Faces, Places, an exhibition that showcases the work of 10 international photographers. Held at the Armani Silos Museum in Milan, the new show marries a plethora of perspectives, from Christopher Anderson's intimate portraits shot in China to Werner Biscoff's dynamic view of New York and Martin Parr's tongue-in-cheek portrayal of life in England. Iranian-born Nusha Tavakolian is one of the photographers on the show. At the exhibition opening in Milan, held after the Emporio Armani show, she tells Monaco's Natalie Theodosi about the challenges of breaking into the world of photography as a self-taught woman, how she uses her work to highlight women's issues and her future plans to delve into film. So my name is Nivsha Tavakulian. I'm a photographer since 25 years now. I started photography when I was 16. So I quit school and I picked the camera and I started working. And it took me some time to realize what I want to say, what I want to do, to find my language. Yeah? I found the language, but I couldn't understand because when you're self-taught, you make so many mistakes until you really know what is you are doing. So I did so many things that which were maybe not what I would do now. But now after 20-something years, I have found my voice in the world of photography. And it's a very challenging world. It's not easy because for me, photography, it's about some photographers, for them, it's like what they see. They just want to capture what is in front of them. But for me, it's really important that I find something that is the drive to push me to go around the world, to be passionate, because without passion, for me, photography is nothing. So many subjects that I'm working, I try to find the passion, you know. What is the connection between me and the subject? But you don't see me, but you see my world and my vision through the life of other people. And is your home of Iran a big source of inspiration? Absolutely, absolutely. Iran is a country where all my emotions are synced with each other. And for example, in Iran, my eye, brain and heart is synced. And this is very important 
So photography, that these are sync. Because with the eye you see, with brain you think, but with your heart you need that to show emotions and be emotional about the topic. And tell me about being part of this exhibition at Armani Silos. What does it mean for you to be here and how did you choose the photographs that you were going to display? So, to be honest, I had no influence to be part of this. I think Magnum, they chose me as one of the photographers and also they chose the curator, chose the images because my work is always about social issues. But for this exhibition, I think they didn't really want to dive into social issues. It's a space where you come in, it's like you meditate through beautiful images, colorful light, and it takes you to another world, and then you leave, and then you feel calmness. You feel like you watch so many beautiful things after one another. So they want me for this show, but in order to do that, I think from each series that I had, they took one image to build that world, yeah. And tell me, I mean, there are some really intimate portraits here that really speak to the viewer, I think. Tell me a little bit more about them and how you capture yeah. those portraits. For example, this, uh, she's my sister. It's a portrait from a series called Listen. It's about women singers who are not allowed to sing in Iran solo. And I create the imaginary CD cover for each of the women singers and I put my sister as a model to do uh, what I thought it would be suitable imaginary CD cover for them. How do you come up with the themes for your series and your subjects? Is there a, a lot of research involved? Is it more instinctual? I think I'm a photographer who follows her intuition. I work a lot with my intuition. And for this series, like always, I wanted to become a singer and I had this big desire to show the frustration of so many women who are amazing singers but they cannot sing. So for me, it was really important to do an effective project where you feel how it is uh, that you are not able to perform or make CD in a country like Iran. And also this series, there is a video installation, six channel video installation where the women they are singing, but they are mute, you don't hear their voice. I wanted to just transmit the frustration to audience how these women, they also feel. Tell me a bit more generally, what is it like for you working as a female photographer in Iran and addressing this quite sensitive at times social issues? To be honest, I don't really put myself in a box that I'm female, I'm Iranian, I go everywhere. I go everywhere, I go around the world. For example, now I'm here because I was just in Switzerland in Bern. They asked me to do a photo series about the parliamentarian because next year is 175 years that Swiss parliament is made and they asked four Magnum photographers to do something about that. I only focus on female parliamentarian because I was shocked to realize women in Switzerland only 50 years ago they got the right to vote. And for me, this was something out of this world. I never imagined that something like this can happen in Switzerland. So you see, there are some topics where no matter if you're in Iran, if you're in Switzerland, but your gaze sees that and you're sensitive towards it. And for me, as a woman, I'm quite sensitive about women issues. And wherever you put me, take me, doesn't matter. I focus on those issues because I believe 
until you don't capture, until you don't talk about it, until there's no discussion about it, things will not change. And in Iran, it's the same. And tell me also about being part of this exhibition with photographers from all over the yeah. world. Is it something that's inspiring you to see your work next to Absolutely. other people's work and come from other countries as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing for me. It's a great recognition to be among all these, you know, top photographers around the world. They're all, you know, when I was a very young photographers, I would be inspired by their work. And now it's a big honor for me to be among them at this show. And I mean, you spoke about the world of photography as quite a challenging space, but you have been establishing yourself in the last 25 years. Looking ahead now, what are some of your aspirations, things you want to do, new projects? I'm very curious, let's say that, because I like to challenge myself and I'm curious to see what I would do in a world of film. So I always also make film, but it's more like video installation and moving images. But I'm serious now and my concentration is to make my first cinema film, hopefully. yeah. And I mean, we are in Milan, the Emporio Armani show just took place and we're in the Armani Theatre, so I also have to ask you about fashion in Iran. Is that something that has become a form of expression, especially Absolutely. for women? Yeah. What, what does it look like there? We have, like, most of my clothes they are coming from Iran. They are designers, Iranian young designers, who are expressing themselves to their clothes and we have amazing textile and traditions and there is a fusion of old and new so you want to have something like always when I have exhibition or talk or something I like to bring a little bit of my culture to the place that I'm going and I'm always working with Iranian designers not today because I was coming from Switzerland and this is just happening they say oh you are there please come to the but if I would knew sooner, I would definitely were one of the Iranian designers. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nusha Tavakolian and Natalie for the interview. Finally, on the show, this coming week marks the start of Wimbledon, tennis' most traditional competition. Racket Magazine's new issue is also a celebration of a hundred years of the All England Lawn Tennis Club's centre court. The racketing will also come to London for a series of special events. I love Racket Magazine. They have been a constant presence here on the stack throughout the years. Let's hear my conversation with the editor and founder, David Shafto. I guess anyone who puts out an independent magazine or any kind of magazine will understand this. We're getting ready to do our 20th one. So we're out here. Number 19 is a collaboration with the All England Club for Wimbledon. And it's the 100th anniversary or the centenary of Center Court, the actual physical Center Court, not the 100th anniversary of the tournament, but of, of Center Court as we know it. So we're here on on the stack talking about issue 19. And I've stopped thinking about issue 19 months ago, and I'm deep in 20 thinking about the next one, putting it together. So it's always funny when you're out there promoting something that you really haven't thought about, you know, for a few months and, and are, are kind of knee deep in, in the next thing. So I'm currently just 
mind blown that we're doing the 20th one and thinking about how to make that one really special because it does feel like a special milestone for us. But to answer your question about an update with Racket, you know, it's it's going strong. Magazine is going great. We've got a, a newsletter on Friday that's really been quite successful. But, you know, we started out selling merch and now we're selling sort of clothes and nice products and we're getting into publishing. We published a book of the best writing from Racket and now we're working on, we have a couple of small independent art photo books that are coming out this summer. And then we did so much photography around this issue for Wimbledon that we're collaborating with the club and with a photographer to do a sort of massive official Wimbledon photo book that'll be, I hope, a much more mass market thing than we've done in the past. So yeah, we're really just kind of, and especially coming out of the pandemic as well, we're sort of doing all the fun stuff now that we had talked about in the early years and then had to pump the brakes on during the pandemic. So it feels like quite an exciting time for us. And also to have tennis back and have the fans back and have brands spending with us again, candidly, and to be able to do these fun events that we have planned for the summer. So it it kind of feels like a new, like a bit of a rebirth for us. That's fantastic. And how special is Wimbledon for you as as a tennis fan and, and also for Racket? Because, you know, the whole issue is kind of dedicated to it in a way. You know, it's funny. At Racket, we're always talking about, you know, one of our taglines we always say is we're about the public courts, not the country club. You know, we're anti-elitist. We're democratizing the game. And we told this to Wimbledon as well. It's like, you know, we're all we hate having to wear all white on a tennis court and gentility around tennis. We want to take it to the streets and the people But Wimbledon is Wimbledon, and it's super special, and all that goes out the window when you're talking about Wimbledon. It's the sport's biggest tournament, so much history. You know, we love playing tennis on grass, so we're kind of suckers for that. So kind of all of our messaging around public tennis courts, we threw it right out the window to, to jump in with Wimbledon because it's just that special for our sport. I mean, you start with the cover as well, which is Althea Gibson, right? She was the first black athlete to win the slam. I mean, let's talk about the covers for Racket. I mean, in my opinion, David, they are works of art. I mean, you, you guys should do something <laughs> with this and sell it as a work of art. But tell us about this illustration and perhaps more in general about the importance of the covers as well. We've been really lucky with the covers. So this this is a work of art. I mean, Marcus Brutus is a painter who's really you know, got a lot of juice right now. He just had a big show in New York right around the time we commissioned this cover. I think he's got a show in, don't quote me, but I think it's in Stockholm right now. So he made this cover for us. And, and as I always do, I say, do whatever you want, you know, and we always get the best results. And I, and I love this painting, but going back to the beginning, we always, we got very lucky with our first few covers to get some big artists that I, maybe I called in favors or they agreed to do it. And it sort of created this this sort of snowball effect of artists wanting to be involved in the cover. So we were able to, you know, up to a point, basically what happened is we, we asked Jonas Wood, who's a humongous painter in, in the U.S., probably the most high-profile painter in America right now in terms of his visibility and his sales and the value of his work. And he didn't do an original cover for us, but he gave us one of his beautiful tennis court paintings. And that was sort of a dog whistle to artists who were like, I want to be on the magazine cover that Jonas Wood was on. So it just kept getting more and more momentum. So now when I, I go to an artist, I say, you know, you may not know anything about tennis. We do this magazine and we've had Jonas Wood and Deborah Roberts and Honor Titus and Marcus Brutus on the cover. People really respond. So, 
you know, two or three years ago, it was like, oh, man, I hope I can get so-and-so to do it. And now it's kind of like something that people see as prestigious and something that they want to be in this group of people that's done our, our covers. And I'm just so pleased that that's happened. I don't think it was a given that that would happen. So, yeah, it's kind of onwards and upwards. Our next cover, which I, I won't reveal right now, is another great artist from New York who, who started out in graffiti. And, I, you know, the conversations always look like this. I got in touch with him and I said, look, I, I don't know if you know anything about tennis. It doesn't matter to me. Your work kind of reminds me of tennis in a way. You know, would you like to be a part of this? And he said, you know, actually, I love tennis and I've been thinking about tennis drawings and I play a lot of handball and I'd love to do it. So it's getting a little easier and just so fun to have a small role in in these great artists and work that they make. You know, these paintings, you know, they have a lot of value and people buy them and they sit in some rich person's home. And, and I know that I had a role in, in creating that in a very small way. And that's really satisfying also. And David, my question to you, you guys will be here in London for Wimbledon. Tell us about the plans, because it's quite exciting. You're going to have a, a racket house. Tell us a bit more about that. Oh, Racket House is great. It's really the um, the brainchild of my brilliant partner, Caitlin Thompson. And it's basically, it's whatever we need it to be. It's a roving event in whatever city the tennis happens to be in. So we've done them in Miami, Palm Springs, London, New York, of course. And, you know, the first one was what it sounded like, Racket House in Palm Springs. And we had a party and Sergio Tacchini showed their new line there. We did a campaign for Sergio Tacchini as well, podcast interviews, capture all this content there. You know, the one in Miami, it wasn't in a house, it was at a tennis club and we had clinics and food and drinks and, and a party at night. London is more, more traditionally in a house. We're, we'll have a house in Southfields near the tournament and there's a cocktail party and then a day of programming. I believe Wimbledon is building us a mini grass court in the backyard. We'll be screening a film about a guy who built a grass court to honor his father. There's um, brand partners and food and, and just a really good time and a way to sort of see our audience, interact with them, get them all in one place and have a great time. New York, we won't do a house. It's, um, I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say about the one in New York, but it's going to be spectacular. <clears throat> just a series of events around tennis and around the big tournaments and really just to get our readers together and have a great time and, and always play tennis in some form, obviously. I love the story on the new issue about the survival kit for <laughs> Wimbledon. And, and I was wondering, what's on your survival kit, actually? So my survival kit, the first thing you need to know about my survival kit is it's always left at home when I go to the tennis. I'm always like, where are my things? But I, this is something I've thought about. Wide-brimmed hat. My wife is mortified by this hat. But you're out there in the sun, and I like to have my own umbrella, you know, like a safari-style super wide brim, kind of gross, but I'll bring extra t-shirts. You know, Wimbledon in the US Open is very, very hot. Everyone should have Racket Magazine in their survival kit, but I always like to bring something to read, the newspaper, a book. If you're waiting online or waiting for a, a match to start, plenty of water. Just really the obvious things. I like to bring a camera because these sort of iPhone photos of tennis from far away are, are kind of useless. So, you know, I always bring a camera. And just tons of magazines. My bag is always so heavy because I'm giving out our magazine. So I'm really satisfied that, you know, I, I set out in the morning, my shoulders are killing me, and I'm carrying this heavy bag. And then I love it at the end of the day, the bag is light because I've distributed all the magazines and 
given them to journalists and fans and players and whoever I encounter. So, David, tell us, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about merchandising. I've seen a lot of very cool T-shirts on your website. How important is that side for the business, for Racket? Do you think that's something that really worked with the fans? Because I think for me, it's a very natural fit, all your products as well. It doesn't come across as something quite random. I think it works very well with the magazine. Oh, thank you. Well, we have a, a logo that we developed that was based on the New York City Parks Department logo, and we do a shirt in the different Grand Slam colors. And I, I do think it's a great advertisement for the brand and for the magazine and and sends this message that we're, you know, despite what I said about Wimbledon earlier, that we're about public courts and inclusion and anyone can play. The different colors are fun. And what's really great also is that, you know, in the in the early days, you oh, there's someone wearing a racket T-shirt and one of, you know, Caitlin would be like, oh, that's my friend. And now we're seeing people that, you know, we don't know wearing our, our things. And that's incredibly satisfying. But I think the Parks Department inspired logo really telegraphs this message in a way that maybe the magazine doesn't or, you know, we can't do with our words. It's just sort of this sort of soft power that telegraphs this idea that we're about public courts and, and inclusion, not country clubs and all white, that kind of thing. Thank you, David. And issue 19 of Racket is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, David Stevens. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen to the show at monaco.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, on monaco.com, you can also subscribe to our magazine, Monaco. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Tennis with Runner. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.